Hello and welcome all. My name is Marissa, and you are listening to the Shining Armor Podcast, the show hosted by a comic book newbie who likes Marvel comics and just wants to talk about Iron Man. Thank you all so very much for tuning in for episode 3. If you are still listening at this point, then good news. We are three episodes further than I thought we'd get. So please know that your support is greatly appreciated. In this episode, we are going to further discuss the establishing characteristics of Tony Iron Man Stark. Specifically in his capacity, is a glamorous playboy who women seem to trip over themselves simply to be seen with. We are also going to continue using this lens in order to discuss Iron Man's interactions with the leading ladies of the two stories published in Tales of Suspense, numbers 43 and 44. Oh yeah, we are totally going to go there. So strap on in folks, we're going to dive right on into it. Part 1. Defining Attraction In early Marvel comics, it is quite possible that Anthony Snark is one of their earliest male characters, protagonist, hero, or otherwise, who is explicitly a sex symbol. This theory seems to hold water when comparing him to his contemporaries of the time, specifically Reed Richards with his untouchable genius, and the everyman Peter Parker come to mind. While these two are quite handsome and charming in their own right, we have it actually on record that Tony's appearance in particular was deliberately designed to be attractive. It was built into his character right from his origin, with his Errol Flynn-esque looks and charm. Prior to his origin event, that is, the whole kidnapping, prisoner of war, shrapnel on the heart business, he is introduced as a sophisticate, described as being comfortable in high society, as well as in his capacity as an inventor and engineer, and is shown in various glamorous social situations in the company of beautiful, adoring women. Tales of Suspense, number 39, H3, panel 1. Briefly reviewing the previous three issues, chestplate problems aside, Tony is still shown to enjoy the company of several lovely ladies, two of them even in the same issue. They even receive names and everything. Marion, a blonde glamour girl, and Jean, a brunette beauty, both appear with Tony at separate points in TOS number 40. Even though neither of them appear again after this issue, the fact that we learn their names at all is important enough to show us that these ladies are important to Tony, at least in the capacity we are shown. It's also notable that Tony doesn't seem to have a type just yet, in just what's been established so far. And even later on when he is accused of having one, it's highly debatable. We'll get to it when we get to it. Part 2. You're so vain. It may seem inconsequential, but from reading, it's clear that Tony seems to care very much what his lady friends think of him, and, more importantly, what they think of Iron Man. Even though he keeps the two identities separate from one another, it's clear he still wants these ladies, along with the world around him, to think highly of Iron Man as a hero. 
hints even from Marion that he gets the idea to paint his upgraded Marvel 2 armor gold, as we discussed previously in the last episode. After said lady friend reiterates his concern that Iron Man's appearance looks a little too intimidating to the people he wishes to help, and it sets a precedent that it would be the first of many, many armor redesigns to come. That's right, y'all. He paints his armor gold because his girlfriend told him to. Not that she'd ever know it. The scene in question plays out as follows in TOS number 40, page 7. After Iron Man has cleaned up the situation with the runaway circus animals, Antony returns to the scene, having left in order to call the police, as his rather weak self's excuse in order to seclude himself to put on the armor. This exchange occurs in the first three panels on this page and reads as follows for those of you not reading along. Marion We won't need the police, Tony. Iron Man handled the emergency. But I can't understand one thing. Why does he wear such a terrifying looking costume? He actually frightens people. Tony Really, my dear? What do you think he should wear? Marion. Well, he battles menaces like a hero in olden time. So, if he's a modern knight in shining armor, roll credits, then why doesn't he wear golden metal instead of that awful dull gray armor? Tony, thinking. Hmm, why not indeed? Marion. Then, when people see his golden armor, they won't panic. They'll know he has a heart of gold and an appearance to match his golden deeds. Tony. You know, Marion, I wouldn't be surprised if Iron Man himself would get the same idea. Cheeky, Tony. Real cheeky. Of course, he goes and does just that. He doesn't dismiss her suggestion but rather takes it fully to heart. The next time Marion sees Iron Man, he will indeed be clad in shining gold armor, and she'll probably think it was just a happy coincidence. He doesn't even think the new look is half bad when he tries it on for the first time, and in fact seems quite pleased with it. Leave it to a woman to figure out an attractive appearance, he quips rather gleefully on page 7, panel 6. It may come across as a bit old-fashioned to imply that women only care about fashion and appearances, but for my money, it would seem that the stronger implication is that he probably wouldn't have even considered the appearance of the armor at all if it wasn't for the revelation and input from a first-hand source that women and children are more afraid of Iron Man than the bad guys are. The golden armor will stick around for a good few issues more before he exchanges it for his sleeker, more familiar red and gold look with the Model 3. Part 3. Charity Case When attending the charity ball for the Children's Hospital fundraiser in TOS number 41, Tony is seen alongside a clearly designated plus one, a blobbed bombshell, a clear Marilyn Monroe type, who, despite sharing surface characteristics, most assuredly seems to not be Marion from the previous issue. She isn't actually named, so 
so we can only speculate. However, based on the differing hairstyle and fashion choices, this seems to be an entirely new girl. I feel fully comfortable counting her as girl number three in the tally count of Tony's ladies. For the sake of running with this reference, as well as since Stan and Rob didn't bother to give us a name for her, for our purposes, we're just going to go ahead and call her Marilyn. This young lady appears to admire Tony as much for his philanthropic efforts, as well as his charming good looks. So, Lady Killer Stark is just an old softie at heart. Marilyn exclaims, doll-eyed, on page 2, panel 5. He supports charitable causes and even has time to plan amusements for orphan children. Careful, doll, Tony replies. You'll make me flip my halo. Clearly, he revels in this kind of attention. And continuing from the previous thread, also very clearly cares that his partners think well of him, even if he isn't necessarily doing it for them. Panel 6 and 7 have Marilyn playfully chide Tony about not having time for romance, and she even point-blank asks him straight out if he ever intends to settle down. Tony, of course, gives her every reason under the sun why this can't happen, including, but not limited to, his work as a civilian contractor for the military, his capacity as manager of several global munitions plants, the first mention of the global entity that will ultimately become known as Stark Industries within the next handful of issues, where we will learn that he is the CEO of said entity as well as the head designer and lead engineer, and his scientific research that leads to groundbreaking advancements in the fields of both astronomy and medicine. He even uses the term absentee husband, implying that he'd never even be around enough for there to be any lady waiting for them at home. Even though we aren't sure if that's just because he'd be too busy to be home, or if he would just be running away, staying busy on purpose as to avoid responsibility. What he doesn't actually tell her, and what he seems to imply is the main reason, at least in his own mind, is that his identity as Iron Man would make him a poor partner though he doesn't actually show any concern for baddies finding out about his significant others and threatening them. Yet. Not to mention his concern for his injured heart and knowing that the armor's chestplate is the only thing separating him from life and death. All of this is detailed between pages 2 and 5. To Tony's credit, it does drive Marilyn home and walk her to her door, seeing her off safely before taking his leave. For all his excuses as to why he can't and won't settle down, it's shown clearly that he has a great respect for the women he chooses to keep company with and seems to treat them with care and consideration. It would explain why so many thirsty ladies are always chomping at the bit to spend as much time with him as possible. Part 4. Love em and Leave em. Of course, on the flip side, these ladies seem to know that there is a caveat to being seen with the Marvel Universe's most eligible bachelor to date. Every one of them seem to recognize all too well that even though they enjoy spending time with him, and even though he treats them right while he's with them, they all know they'll never really have his full attention, 
because there's always someone else waiting right around the corner. This is illustrated pretty effectively in TOS number 40 on page 3, panel 3, in a conversation that occurs between Jean and an unnamed tuxedo gentleman after Tony takes his leave, refusing an invite for an evening swim with one of his trademark weak sauce excuses. The exchange is as follows. Tuxedo. Hey, Jean. You live in your hold on Tony? Jean. What girl doesn't, sooner or later? Tony probably has a midnight date with some other gal. Darn her lucky hide. Obviously, the reader understands, even before Tony himself explains it, get used to this bit of repeated information, that the sudden tiredness he uses as an excuse to get out of the invite is due to his chest plate running low on power and needing to recharge. In addition, he voices a marked dread of taking his shirt off in public, which would reveal said chest plate, justifying his hesitation in an activity such as swimming. Is this real fear, however, or is it just his ego in different clothing? Does he simply want to avoid appearing weak so as not to garner pity? Or perhaps to avoid looking like an easy target? Or, heaven forbid, someone putting two and two together and figuring out that he's Iron Man. He doesn't really explain it any further, so we can only speculate for now. However, what we can infer from the sequence is that it seems to be understood by the lady friends he keeps company with that there is always another fish in the sea. In other words, some other girl waiting for him somewhere. The remarkably casual nature of the exchange between Jean and Mr. Tuxedo tells the reader that this isn't the first time she or any other girl has been blown off by Tony due to another appointment. Despite the stringent restrictions of the comics code, which was still in full effect at the time this issue was originally published, the midnight date Jean refers to leaves very little to the imagination, especially when taking into account a previous comment she made in panel one of the same page about Tony's investments all wearing skirts and his name being linked with every actress and society beauty from Hollywood to Rome. There's no mistaking what she's saying here. The implication is crystal clear. Tony Stark gets around. Part 5. Royal Tension Issue Discussed Heels of Suspense Number 43 Iron Man vs. Kala, Queen of the Netherworld The first of the two focus issues for this episode is TOS number 43, cover dated July 1963 and released on April 9, 1963, with plot by Stan Lee, scripting by Robert Bernstein, art by Jack Kirby, inks by Don Heck, and lettering by Artie Simek. Here's a brief summary to catch y'all up to speed if you aren't reading along. And if you aren't at this point, I won't blame you. After some brief heroics by Iron Man saving a group of scientists and security guards at the Stark Labs from a runaway wind tunnel, he does this fan whirlwind cartwheel thing to dissipate the energy. He never does it again. Yeah, I'm not adding this to the powers tally. 
one of the guards, a scientist, and Stark himself are suddenly and mysteriously spirited away. It turns out they have been captured by the forces of the Netherworld, a literal underground society led by the ruthless Queen Gala, who is poised to stage an all-out invasion of the surface world. Turns out, she really only needs Tony and his expertise in order to perfect her world-conquering weapon. The guard and the scientist are just leverage that she can hold over his head to make him cooperate. Tony agrees to Kala's terms in exchange for the safety of his men, but instead builds a replica of his Iron Man armor, which he did not have with him at the time, and suits up to take down the entire operation, using the first instance of his tool-built gadgets, a reverse energy beam, after which he proceeds to teach Queen Kala a lesson by taking her up to the surface, where she immediately begins to wither and rapidly age in the surface air and sunlight. Rightfully so, following this incident, she decides that maybe invading the surface world isn't such a good idea after all, and Iron Man and the two Stark personnel are allowed to return to the surface unharmed. A bit of a footnote. It is mentioned that the denizens of the Netherworld are an offshoot of the Atlantean peoples, who escaped underground shortly before Atlantis was lost to the waves. Of course, true believers, that is, hardcore Marvel fans, know that the underwater Atlantis also exists in the Marvel Universe, so I can see why this connection may seem a bit tenuous to say the least. We will meet the underwater Atlantis world in this very book soon, though if you're reading other Marvel comics from around this time, you've definitely already met them. I picked the subtitle for this episode very intentionally. Those song lyrics have never applied to anyone as well as they apply to Tony Stark. He's handsome, he's charming, women would give their right pinky finger just to be seen with him, and he is fully aware of it. And the armor does a grand total of jack and all in preventing him from continuing to use his charm and sex appeal to negotiate with Gala, however forcefully. I mean, shoot, by the end of the encounter, it is Iron Man, not Tony Stark, that she approaches and attempts to proposition to stay in the netherworld and become her king. Iron Man, of course, politely turns her down, offering a replacement in the form of her head guard Baksu instead. 60s Marvel and the Portrayal of Women Through what I am convinced is no fault of Tony himself, this issue does include some questionable gender politics, no doubt courtesy of Stanley's infamous casual sexism that appears all too frequently during this era. When confronting Baxu before the story's climax, Iron Man states, I believe you should be the natural ruler of the netherworld instead of that beautiful but vain creature, Kala. H10, panel 3. I seriously question whether or not these were actually Tony's words, since, based on everything we've seen in previous issues so far, Tony, at the very least, seems to respect women. Even though we aren't actually given his thoughts and ideas on women in positions of power. Regardless, nothing we are shown so far even remotely gives us the impression that he might be against the idea as a concept. Therefore, I can only conclude that these are Stan's words, not Tony's. After all, we see similar, 
if not worse treatment and or belittling of women in other Marvel comics at the time, specifically the ones written by Stan, and even more specifically in Fantastic Four, where Stan seems to go out of his way to rob Susan Storm, soon to be Susan Richards, of any and all agency in the group's combat encounters. This is how I can only come to the conclusion I did. Of course, your mileage may vary, but I firmly stand by this sentiment. Note that I am not saying he was doing it on purpose. It could just be that maybe he didn't realize this is how it was coming across. I am willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. But my conclusion stands regardless. Corporate Celebrity Before we move on, I want to highlight a hilarious exchange that occurs at the end of the issue. H13, Panel 8 Tony has returned to the surface. A gentleman at a high society party takes notice of Tony, who is of course surrounded by thirsty ladies. The gentleman calls him New York's biggest wolf, then snidely remarks, At least his adventure under the earth kept him away from the girls for a while. Unbeknownst to the party gent, Tony overhears him and thanks to himself with a cheeky smirk. That's what you think, bub. I think Wolverine's gonna sue someone. Well, not really. Thing is how Mr. James Logan Howlett won't be making his debut in the Marvel Universe for at least another decade. This exchange is great for a couple of reasons. First of which is that it shows Tony's notoriety when it comes to his association with women. Everyone knows his reputation. Women seem to accept it. And based on this gent's ribbing, guys are naturally incredibly jealous. It's the age-old paradigm. Men want to be him, and women want to be with him. The other fun thing about this exchange is that it clearly shows that Tony's kidnapping and excursion into the underground kingdom is public knowledge, which solidifies Tony as a highly publicized figure who always has eyes on him by the world around him most likely even to the point of celebrity status, which was rather unusual for someone in his station as a corporate figure during this time period. Of course, this is more likely today as evidenced by certain celebrity corporate figures who shall not be named here, because quite frankly, it's outside the scope of this podcast. I can only imagine Tony's name and photograph popping up in everything, from the local gossip rags to the biggest national papers with said outlets reporting on anything and everything from his latest groundbreaking invention to which up-and-coming starlet he's dating this week. If I'm correct about this implication, and I have no doubt that I am, the fact that he is so scrutinized by the press makes it even more difficult to imagine how in the world he managed to keep his dual identity as Iron Man a secret for as long as he did. That's some real determination right there, let me tell you. Either that, or people just weren't paying that much attention, and or are just maybe even that dense. Part 6. Navigating Denial Issue Discussed, Tales of Suspense number 44, Iron Man Faces the Menace of the Mad Pharaoh. I'm just going to come out with a disclaimer right out the gate. This is a time travel story. And while this would be his first, 
it won't be his last. In fact, one of Iron Man's most acclaimed stories will be a time-traveling adventure. It's certainly not this one, but that's okay. We're going to take a look at it anyway. DLS number 44 is cover dated August 1963 and was released on May 9, 1963. The story is credited as being plotted by Stan Lee, scripted by R. Burns, art by Don Heck, and presumably Inks as well, and lettering by Sam Rosen. As of this issue, it very much looks as though Don is hitting his stride with the line work on this book, as his story, while quite unremarkable, has some very fun visuals. There is some seriously solid artwork on display here. So, even though the plot is nonsensical and the story is not that great, I do recommend checking it out just for the artwork alone. Here's our brief rundown of events. During an expedition to the pyramids of Egypt in order to assist in disturbing, wait, robbing, I'm sorry, excavating a recently uncovered Pharaoh's tomb, Tony and Iron Man aid in discovering the mummy of King Hatep, the titular Mad Pharaoh. While poking around, and quite frankly, neither Tony nor his companions have any real business here, the mummy seemingly returns to life, having merely been in a state of suspended animation. The Mad King blackmails Tony into returning to the past with him through use of a magic charm, using the lives of his teammates as collateral, just like in the previous issue, so he can use Tony's scientific knowledge to aid him in his conquest of generally everything. Tony manages to find a brief moment to sneak away and armor up, and takes out an invading Roman fleet in the process, saving Cleopatra's entourage, which happened to be in the line of fire. In exchange for saving her and her crew, she's prepared to offer Iron Man a wish, and perhaps something a bit more. Wink, wink. But all Iron Man wishes is to return home. He does agree to take out Hatap while he's at it, though. He tracks the mad pharaoh down, who is in the process of fleeing with the charm after all his plans go sideways. Iron Man pursues Hatap, and the power-hungry king drops the charm in a hurry and stumbles over, where it is implied that he falls on his sword on accident. Thanks to the aforementioned comic code, we don't actually get to see this happen, but I would imagine it was probably pretty gruesome. Iron Man then recovers the charm, exchanges goodbyes with Cleopatra, and returns to the present, seemingly taking Cleopatra's heart along with him. Iron Man is a side character in his own book. By all accounts, the story seems to have been written and published around the time of the release of a high-profile Cleopatra motion picture. Whether or not the story features her is a complete coincidence is up to the reader to decide. But I'm willing to bet that it wasn't. Amusingly, according to all sources, the film in question seems to have been a flop, and the story in this volume isn't accurate to any version of events, either historical or otherwise. But when has that ever stopped bandwagons from trying to capitalize on a current craze? This issue, in hindsight, actually ended up being indicative of a worrying trend of using Iron Man stories for weird experimental ideas or writer's pet projects, which seemed to serve no other purpose than to distract the writer from the fact that they are stuck writing an Iron Man story. 
this is just a personal inference of mine, and it's probably a paranoid, if not cruel, jab on my part. But I'll expand on this as we go forward so you can understand where I'm coming from when it comes up. Iron Man's Tool Belt This issue also shows Iron Man using a few more of his tool belt gadgets, showing his growing arsenal of tools and weapons outside of the armor's built-in capabilities. The tool belt gadgets are usually just throwaway kit that are written in for plot convenience, and eventually this concept will be phased out completely, being pared down to only a handful of gadgets that will make sparse appearances here and there, until being completely dismantled. It makes sense. I mean, he's not Batman after all. Heart-stopping close calls. Up to this point, we are only merely told that Tony suffers dizzy spells and other symptoms when his chest plate runs low on power. But after revisiting this first handful of issues, I think this might be the first time we actually see him in a state where he's nearly run out completely. Page 3 shows him barely making it back to his hotel room, and visually in a bad way, short of breath and crawling on the ground desperately trying to reach the nearest outlet in time to plug in and charge up. It's the first of many, many close calls to come, to the point where it will eventually become so extreme and overplayed to the point of absurdity. It almost parodies itself. It's like, bruh, you know you need to keep this thing charged to, oh, I don't know, live? Why you gotta keep cutting it so dang close? Tony Stark hates magic. In a bizarre bit of early installment weirdness on page 7, Tony doesn't seem too incredibly rattled by using a magic charm to travel through time. Rather, he sees it as a great adventure and an opportunity to learn about a bygone era. This stands out to me in particular rereading this story, because I know for a fact that it will be later established that, actually, magic in general really freaks Tony right the heck out. Spells, enchantments, magical trinkets, otherworldly entities both mystical and demonic. In other words, anything that can't be understood by science or other conventional means, you can count him out. Tony Stark is not about that occult life. So, going back to the story and seeing him so willing to go through with using a magic charm to travel in time is a little funny. Especially because it's so at odds with what will be elaborated on later down the line. Who knows? Maybe this is the inciting incident that will eventually lead to that infamous quirk of his, but it's never really clearly specified where exactly it came from, and the answer is more likely something we'll get to a bit later, so we'll just have to keep our eyes open. An aside on Tony and magic. You can skip this next part if you want. This is just me giving a little more context. On a tangentially related note, in an amusing yet Personally, delightful twist, Iron Man is one of your playable companions in the recent released video game Marvel's Midnight Suns, developed by Firaxis and released for the PlayStation 5, Xbox Series X and S, and PC. I mentioned this game briefly before in the Origin episode. For reference, the general plot of the game revolved around terrorist organization Hydra in their successful attempt to resurrect Lilith, the Mother of Demons. 
in order to bring about the Midnight Sun and gain ultimate power. As the player, you play the role of the Hunter, a customizable character and the child of Lilith, as you work to defeat your crazy demon mother with the aid of the Midnight Suns, a group of Marvel superheroes who specialize in the supernatural and the occult. The core group of the Midnight Suns consists of Nico Minoru of the Runaways, the half-vampire vampire hunter Blade, Ileana Rasputin, aka the X-Men Magic, and Robbie Reyes Ghost Rider, in addition to a handful of Avengers and X-Men who also join your cause to save the world from Lilith's demonic influence. And Spider-Man is there too, I guess. <laughs> With this kind of a setting, it becomes crystal clear that several of your teammates are way out of their depth and comfort zone. And if you were paying attention to what I've just taught you, it should come as no surprise that Iron Man is one of them. In fact, if you speak with Tony enough around the Abbey, your home base of operations between missions, his disdain for anything mystical and occult will come up in conversation. And you even have the chance to help him through his phobia and be a little bit more comfortable with it, showing that the writers on this game actually did their homework. It's such a refreshing change of pace to see more comic book influences in Marvel media outside of the comics themselves, even just a little bit, as we get further and further away from the core hero's MCU appearances, especially where Iron Man is concerned. Cleopatra is a glorified cameo. Returning to the story discussion and theme of this episode, despite the extenuating circumstances under which this story was published, Cleopatra actually plays a small, rather unnotable role here. For a story where she was so prominently marketed as being a huge part of, she is very much a non-entity. Her first appearance is nearly halfway through the story, at the bottom of page 10, and by the middle of page 11, she is already propositioning Iron Man to rid her land of Hattep's influence, just shortly after he's pulled her crew out of the line of fire. Despite only having just met the guy, she can somehow tell that he's different. Of course, he can't exactly just explain that he's from the future, because that would be insane, and she'd never believe it. I guess the magic time-traveling charm is not common knowledge. So he says nothing to confirm her suspicions but agrees to her terms to destroy Hattap's forces in order to capture said charm and return home. Iron Man is determined that he must not fail and understands that he belongs in his own time, so being stuck in the past is not an option, though he does admit to himself that Cleopatra's beauty is almost worth it. As an aside, it was a rather fun story in a much later issue of the series What If? where we get to explore later on what would happen if this man of technology who always has an eye on the future actually does get stuck in the distant past. But we'll have to wait quite a while before we can take a look at that one. Hilariously enough, Cleopatra seems to feel the same way about Iron Man, regardless of the armor hiding his appearance. Not only does she sense he's different, somehow, She's shown to be inexplicably drawn to him, even though she really has no reason to be. As he prepares to return home on page 13, panels 4 and 5, she pleads with him. Oh, wondrous stranger, whoever you are, 
say you will remain and share my throne with me. For though I know not your real identity, I, Cleopatra, have lost my heart to you. He still has to go, of course. But he placates her by telling her that he'll always remember her, and even calls her my queen. Panel 6 shows Tony, having returned to the future, back in Hatap's tune with his archaeologist friend from the beginning of the story. As they both look upon a new, mysterious hieroglyphic mural depicting Cleopatra embracing a figure wearing strangely familiar-looking golden armor. Bookmarking the story are parallel encounters with a nosy reporter. At the beginning of the story, he asks Tony, prior to his departure for Egypt, whether he thinks he could have made it with the famous royal beauty. And Tony, seemingly used to dealing with the press at this point, conjures up some cheeky, half-hearted response, something he knows the reporter wants to hear. The guy poses the exact same question at the end of the story upon Tony's return to the States. However, this time, Tony just smiles mischievously, knowing the answer, but keeping it to himself. The Problem with Time Travel To be quite honest with you, as amusing as it is, this story actually perfectly illustrates some of the issues people tend to have with time travel stories in general. As much as I personally love a good time travel story myself, this is... not a good time travel story. If we're talking shop here, Iron Man's very existence and interference in past events should have caused some serious ripples in the timeline and should have left a lot of questions to be answered, both in the past and in the present. But he just comes and leaves, and it's like nothing ever happened. Not sure if I appreciate the lack of repercussions here, or if I find it baffling. But seeing as how this won't be his only time travel adventure, I think it's safe to say we'll be visiting these concerns again later on down the line. For now, we can only speculate and imagine for ourselves what kind of repercussions there might have been when future excavations of Mad King Hattap's tomb start to realize that the oddly out-of-place wall painting depicting Cleopatra's golden knight looks a whole heck of a lot like a certain well-known armored hero from our time. It's a shame it's never bought up again. Exploring the ramifications of this finding could have made for quite an interesting study. But I guess I don't blame them for not wanting to dredge up this throwaway story again. Get used to them introducing random things like this, and then not following through. And that'll do it for this particular study. This isn't the end of our exploration of Tony's romantic exploits by a long shot, as his future relationships will only get more fleshed out and more complicated as future writers will choose to explore this aspect of his world in much more detail. These early instances do little more than to firmly establish Tony as a handsome, eligible bachelor whom loads of lovely ladies are chomping at the bit to sink their teeth into. They do the job for now, but as Tony's world gets more and more expanded upon, we'll be able to dive deep into some of his more infamous romantic exploits and his most iconic relationships. Thank you all very much for joining me for this episode. Please tune in next time for what, in hindsight, would actually turn out to be the first real landmark Iron Man story in Tales of Suspense number 45, a story that's influence will dramatically change the trajectory of the narrative as it would introduce concepts 
and characters that will stick around and shape Tony's world for many issues to come. I could give you a hint, but spoiling it here won't be very fun. So you'll just have to tune in next time to find out. In the meantime, please follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And tell your friends or family or whoever you think might be interested. Remember, caring is caring. As always, the intro and outro theme is Breakdown by Kevin McLeod. Until next time, my name is Marissa, and you've been listening to the Shining Armor Podcast, the show hosted by a comic book newbie who likes Marvel Comics and just wants to talk about Iron Man. Stay safe and be good, y'all.